Today's episode is sponsored by Jacqueline Steves. Jacqueline has a free block of the month coming up called I Love Home. Each quilt block has a house theme. The program will run August through December 2017, and the blocks are pieced with options to add applique or hand embroidery. Get the optional fabric kit for $6 off with the code WALSHYNAPS2017 at checkout. Visit JacquelineSteves.com to get the I Love Home Block of the Month for free. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 100 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about the Modern Quilt Guild and Project Runway with my guest, Elisa Haight Carlton. Elisa is a modern quilter, designer, author, and the co-founder and executive director of the Modern Quilt Guild. She's written two quilting books, Modern Minimal and Block Party. And when not working in the quilting world, she heads up casting for Project Runway. Elisa lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two sons. Elisa Hay Carlton, welcome. Thanks for having me in episode 100. That's exciting. I know, episode 100. I know, I, it's, it is sort of crazy. I'm excited about that. So kind of a good milestone and you're a great guest to help me celebrate. So thanks for being here. And I want to start by talking about the Modern Quilt Guild because this organization has just made such a significant contribution to the creative life of so many people. And it's a global organization with over 10,000 members. Is that right? Yeah, we actually just hit 12,000, which is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So, so 12,000 members all over the world, guilds and individual members coming together around modern quilting. So I'd love to start by hearing about the spark that got it all started. Sure, sure. I mean, we, yeah, that spark, we never could have anticipated everything it would lead to. But, um, so it all started because I was, um, I was already a modern quilter. I started quilting in about, um, two, early 2008 and, um, came to it a hundred percent online. I was already knitting, And Flickr, which was where everyone creative was talking at that time, um, led me to this group, Fresh Modern Quilting, Fresh Modern Quilts, um, this specific Flickr group. And it just opened my eyes. I was like, I need to make quilts. That is something I want to do. Um, So I dove in and I taught myself and I found all these other like-minded quilters online doing swaps, sharing pictures, sharing inspiration, blogging as well. And so I was really excited about all of this. And so I continued to, you know, just explore quilting and want to be a part of it more. So I discovered that there was this thing, quilt, (laughs) quilt festival, (laughs) this thing I had not previously known about, this huge event in Long Beach. And so I went in 2009. And while I was there, I realized that none of the quilters I was talking to online and the aesthetic I was seeing online in this small online community was reflected at the actual event. And this surprised me because I didn't know that that huge traditional quilting world existed. I only knew about my own little world and was surprised to see that there was no overlap. So I blogged about it and just saying, hey, why aren't um, more modern fabrics for sale. Why aren't more modern quilts hanging there? And 
um, how, what can we do to become more a part of the general main quilting world? And um, it turned into a whole conversation on my blog and Latifa Safir, who's the co-founder of the MQG, commented on my blog saying, well, maybe we should start our own modern quilt guild. And she was right. <laughs> so we did. We were off and running really pretty quickly. Um, and the first uh, MQG meeting was the LA MQG meeting in October of 2009. And that was the first spark, this moving the people who were already talking to each other online to meeting in person. And how many and of I, those, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how many of those people lived and did Latifa live in LA? Yes, okay. she did. And how many found, of those other people online that you were talking to on Flickr and on your blog actually lived in LA and came to that original meeting? Um, we had 20 people at that first meeting. Okay. Now, I don't know how many of them I was actively talking to. Some of them definitely. Like I remember Liz Harvatine, she had one of the early modern quilting blogs, Lady Harvatine. I remember seeing her walk in the door and be like, oh, Lady Harvatine's here. I'm so excited to meet her in person. Um, so there were a handful I was definitely talking to already. And the rest, I think, were just, I blogged. Maybe they were reading my blog, reading... Right other places where we just did the legwork to spread the word that we were starting this. So that first meeting, I mean, I don't think it was at that first meeting, but I remember in early meetings talking with Latifa and others about, wouldn't it be so awesome if this started happening in other places? And could you imagine if we someday had a big convention that we'd all get together in one place? And so, you know, I just, I was just on my personal blog then blogging about these meetings we were having and how much fun we were having. And because I was talking to people all over the country and world, organically, they started saying, I want to do this in my town and emailing me and so then I quickly started a modern quilt guild. It was just a WordPress blog at the time site where I could link to all these blogs, these uh, guilds that were starting all over the country and world, really. And so it just took off like that, took off like wildfire, um, a, you know, a really active, thriving community already talking to each other, just transitioning to meeting in person. And I think, too, and like listening, li I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think listening to... Um, to what happens with, you know, to people's demand. In other words, you know, you're onto something when things actually spread without you really having to do that much. Like the idea is strong enough that people grasp the idea and say, I want to do this too. And they contact you and then they do it. You know what I mean? It's not just, oh, neato. And then they sort of, you know, let it go, but they're actually going out and doing it. To me, that seems like you know, you know that what you have is golden when that happens. Absolutely. There is just, there, nothing can replace in-person interaction about something you're passionate about. You know, all of us were posting pictures and getting comments, but to have those oohs and ahs or that, that feedback and in person is just so inspiring in a way that can't be duplicated in, in, in a different way. So so yeah, it really just took off like wildfire. And um, and we quickly realized, okay, we need to figure out a way to formalize this. This isn't, um, it was just all organic growth. You know, there was a hub online that I was maintaining and, and we sort of formed this early planning committee with a handful of us. And we were doing a lot of legwork to keep you know, the fire burning, but we realized we really needed to formalize. We needed to have a way to 
for somebody to formally say, yes, I am a member of the MQG. So, but we also realized we needed money to do that because we needed to launch a big website with a membership database and all of that. So that's how QuiltCon came into play. We realized I might be getting ahead of myself here, but we realized we could make money on a big event that then could prompt us to formalize membership. So, okay, so yeah, that's let's so let's take this apart a little bit. So, I mean, I I'm part of a local artist group here in my town in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and um, it's called the Wellesley Women Artisans, and I founded it with a friend. And you know, we've gone through a lot of different um, sort of conversations around formalizing because there's there's like a sort of hesitancy there. There's pros and there's cons. Obviously, if you have the pros is you, you have money, you can do things, you can um, create a big website, you can create an event, you can, you know, make things formal and real. On the cons, though, it's like now there's committee meetings and now there's paperwork and accounting. You know, there's sort of like there's a board and people are going to get upset because they're not on it and, you know, like back and forth. So it's almost like we've decided to sort of keep it super informal and just go to each other's houses and make art and sort of let it just be that um, and have some like local events in town, but not get bogged down because the times we have, it really has felt like we got bogged down. So was there any feeling there? Like maybe we don't want it to turn into that and maybe we do want to keep it tiny or was it always like, let's just do this? Um, well, because of the scale of it, it, it became sort of like inevitable that we had to do it because we were international, but all these, we, we needed a way for the MQG the like, you know, umbrella organization to somehow, um, represent and be a part of all and, you know, make all these different local guilds cohesive. And there was no way to do that without formalizing. And I think what you're describing has, um, has lasted at the local guilds, like each, the LAMQG, People are making quilts. They love talking to each other about them. People will have a sew day at their house. They, you know, um, casual get togethers at a museum for inspiration. Like that's, that's all happening at all of the local level. And, and I think the local guilds have varying degrees of, of formality and that's completely up to them. The MQG doesn't dictate how each local guild runs itself, um, beyond the fact that we give, American, uh, U.S. guilds, um, nonprofit status. So they have to, you know, they have to follow some guidelines in order to be sure they're, you know, if they're following 501c3 rules. But aside from that, we really don't, um, the local guilds can, can be as formal as informal and casual as they want. But on the international level, we really had to formalize in order to be able to keep this thing moving along, to keep it driving to, and, and the board, like you were like, um, initially we had a board because we didn't have formal membership. We had a board and it was just, um, people who had been volunteering a lot of time at the international level, who, who had really just, um, been doing a lot of work for the organization on their own. And so we, and who for one reason or another made good sense to have on the board. And then we were getting feedback, completely legitimate feedback. Like if we have a board, how do we know membership is, is appropriately represented on it? But then on the other hand, if we didn't have formal membership, 
how could we know what members we were representing on the board? So, so there were a lot of things that we knew we just had to formalize in order to, to keep the organization growing and thriving. Okay. So you decided to become a nonprofit, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. which is a 501 C3 status. And, um, can you just explain for people who sort of don't know a whole lot about corporate structure and nonprofit status? Like why was that the right choice? Um, well, uh, Really, the vast majority of associations are nonprofits. Now, a lot of them are um, 501c6s, like professional associations. We were a 501c3, um, which is because of our focus on education in our mission. Um, Charities and education nonprofits are 501c3s. So that's why we fit under that specific category for nonprofit status. We also really wanted to make sure membership knew that um, we're doing all this because we love, we are the community. Those of us who do all the, who run the organization and have from the beginning, we began it and run it because, you know, I co-founded the LAMQG, Heather Grant, the other sort of my partner in running in in the staff, founded the Austin MQG, um, Jackie Gearing, who's been a part since the early, early days and um, still sits on the board, uh, was one of the co-founders of the Kansas City MQG. Like we were doing all this out of our passion for the organization, for the community. And I think being a, a nonprofit really speaks to that, that um, the money the organization makes obviously pays salaries, not to the board. The board is 100% volunteer, but pays salaries to the staff. But otherwise, all of the profit goes right back into the organization to keep it growing and thriving and running. So um, I want to clarify. So my husband is a, a um, nonprofit executive. So this is a mm-hmm. topic that we discuss often. And I yeah. think that there is a misconception among some people who look at or think about nonprofits just sort of on a surface level that the staff should be volunteer, that nobody should be getting paid. And um, my point and his point is always, if you want the organization to run well um, and to have dedicated, talented people be there day in, day out, making sure that it runs well and is a great product and a great place to be, then you need to be able to hire in a competitive market. Like you need to be able to hire, in his case, he's a financial executive, um, people who are comparable, you know, um, pay scale in for-profit organizations. Um, And I think that there can be some feeling like, oh, why why are they getting paid a salary? You know, why is Elisa getting paid and Heather getting paid a salary? So can you just explain sort of how that works and sort of clarify that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you laid out. If I'm putting 40 hours a week of my life into this, I need to be able to also pay my bills and support my, you know, help support my family. And, um, and like you said, make competitive money. I, I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's pretty clear to everyone that you know, nonprofits do not always pay as well as, um, as for-profit companies. There's a number of different reasons there. Um, they, they should in theory, I think there's a lot of people working in nonprofits out of passion. So they're willing, you know, and this is a bigger conversation about the culture of nonprofits, right. But, and, and this idea that, um, every single penny should just go, Back, but pe- yeah, 
it's just not sustainable. Like you said, we, the MQG now has five full-time employees and two part-time. Um, and part of what makes, I mean, we couldn't do what we do without that. We couldn't put up QuiltCon. We couldn't, you know, provide all the patterns and webinars and membership. I mean, we wouldn't have a membership database maintained. I mean, it's just, it's just not feasible to continue running an organization of our size without having paid employees. Okay. And I don't think think that's great. I mean, I think, thank you for saying that. And I think it's really important for people to understand that. And, you know, my husband, in his case, he works for a charity. And I think even that, then it even gets more complex because like you were saying, like, they, people feel like every penny should just go directly to the recipients of the charity. But, you know, but exactly like you said, like that is just, and if you want it to be fiscally responsible and invested properly and all of the rest, you need to have people who know what they're doing and who are devoting their career to it. And those people need to have health insurance and they need to be able to survive. So... Absolutely. The yeah. MQG does not yet provide health insurance for its employees. I'm looking forward to that day. Yes, that day <laughs> yes. does need to come. You guys deserve some good health insurance and retirement I, I, retirement plans and all the rest that, that the rest of us get. You know, well, I don't, but people who work for, you know, organizations should get. Um, yeah. Okay, so... So you went ahead um, because of this push needed to to formalize, became a five hundred one c three, and um, and have you have a volunteer board, and um, and all of these guilds all over the world. And can you explain about individual memberships? Because I think some people might not be totally clear that you don't actually have to be part of a group. You can be a member of the Monocle Guild just as you are. Exactly. Yeah. There's two ways to join. You can either um, find the guild local to you and join that guild. And by joining that guild and paying that guild dues, the Modern Quilt Guild, you will get membership to the the umbrella organization, the Modern Quilt Guild as well. Or if there is not a local guild close to you, or if, you know, you're just not, you're not someone who wants to add, you know, meetings once a month to your calendar or whatever the reason might be, um, you can join individually. And that's just a flat $30 a year. You just sign up online and you get all the benefits that come with membership, the 12 uh, patterns of the month, the block of the month, all access to all of our webinars, discounts on our events, um, and the back catalog of all of those things too, which is really now over the years accumulated to quite a good chunk of content, which is, so yeah, so people can join either way. Okay. And um, yeah. And I'm just wondering about, um, about pushback. You know, I think as a, an organization grows and this has been what, seven years or something like that since the beginning um, that you've been working on this and growing this and in, you know, there's inevitably going to be growing pains. Um things that go wrong, mistakes along the way, people who disagree, all of that sort of thing. And because modern quilting is so connected online, sometimes that pushback can kind of take off in a way that um, feels very fast and forceful. So I wondered if you have any sort of thoughts on, on what you've learned along the way about building such a large community. Um, yeah, it's like you said that that has definitely happened. And, and, um, a lot of it I think is, is because the community existed before we were organizing it, right. They were, all these people were not all of them, obviously having the guilt has grown the community enormously, but, um, it's, it's a combination of things. Um, 
yeah, the internet is loud. To 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 very very upset people can be very very loud, and just the nature of human nature is that they're heard more loudly than the 200 people who are not saying anything who are fine, you know? (laughs) So, um, I mean, we've learned a lot along the way. We've really learned a lot. It's, um, for all of us who are on the staff and on the board, I believe there are board members who have sat on other boards, but for a lot of us, it's the first time we're doing this. And we come to it with 100% good intentions. You know, that's that's the one thing I always try and really stress is that I don't think anybody would be working for a quilting nonprofit with bad intentions because they're not really going to get far and they're not going to make a lot of money. And so why would you? Um, so we approach it with really, really good intentions. And we've we really learned that we can take that pushback and that feedback, be it constructive or not, but we can hear it all having, you know, realizing we have to have thick skins when hearing it because we can take it and turn it into something positive. We can be open to it and turn it into something positive. I, you know, I feel like that pushback lets us fill the holes in the dam. You know what I mean? If, if, they're poking holes. Good. I'm happy to see them. I can't always see every hole because I'm so in entrenched in the day in day out work. And so if somebody points something out, I'm even though it, even if it might be like difficult or personally hurtful or whatever initially, I can put that aside and see they're right. That is a problem with the organization and we should address that. And you know, um we've, we've developed systems and processes in order to, uh, because we have heard that feedback, you know? So, um, so really we've worked really, really hard to listen and adjust where we, where we think, yes, that is a very good point. Independently of how it might be communicated to us, it can be a good point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so, um, yeah, I think, I think that's totally fair and, and good for people to hear as well. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Jacqueline Steves. Jacqueline Steves' I Love Home Block of the Month is just about to get started. It's free, and there's a sew-along that goes with it, which you can find at JacquelineSteves.com. Each of the blocks has a house theme, because who doesn't love house blocks? And the program runs from August 2017 through December. You're going to get four blocks for free, and Jacqueline will show you options for either just piecing the blocks or adding applique and hand embroidery to embellish them. This block of the month is a great project for both beginning quilters as well as more advanced quilters. The patterns have a lot of step-by-step diagrams, and Jacqueline's got some video tutorials to show you some of the embroidery stitches as well. You'll get lots of ideas for fabrics and colors, and there's also going to be giveaways with sponsors along the way. You can join Jacqueline's fun Facebook community, So Quilty Friends, to share your photos and ideas and questions as you stitch throughout the last portion of 2017. Jacqueline's also put together a fabric kit for the sew along. So if you want to get everything that you're going to need right at the beginning, you can go ahead and get that. It's available now. You can use the discount code 
While She Naps 2017 and save $6 off the price of the kit through July 10th, 2017. So act now, get the kit, and you'll be all ready when the sew along begins in August. Sewing together with a community of friends makes a project so much more special. So give this block of the month a try. Visit JacquelineSteves.com today. Check it out. And I'll also have that link in the show notes for you. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. And now back to my conversation with Elisa. So it sounds like QuiltCon, which is your um, your event, uh, uh, was part of the idea in, from the very beginning, like this, that you would have an event, you know, sort of a gathering, a national gathering, uh, was sort of part of the excitement right from the beginning. Um, and I was able to go to QuiltCon in 2017 in Savannah, and I actually met you in person briefly in the hall. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and it was a really great experience, very impressive. And um, and I'm wondering if you sort of see QuiltCon now as a peer to Quilt Festival, which is the show you had referenced earlier that you had gone to and not seen any representation of the people you were communicating with online. So is QuiltCon now in your mind or in the mind of the Modern Quilt Guild collectively sort of peers with the AQS shows or with the Mancuso shows and that sort of thing? Um, well, there's a couple of differences. Um, first of all, all those shows are put up for profit and that's a huge difference. So it drives them, drives, drives the people who are putting them up differently. Um, our, you know, all the profit that QuiltCon makes is, you know, the financially, the two organizations are not separate. QuiltCon is not separate from the Modern Quilt Guild financially. So the profit that QuiltCon makes goes right back into the guild itself, the event as well, of course, part of what we, you know, we have to spend a lot of what we make on putting it up. Um, but also, um, QuiltCon is specifically a modern quilting quilt show. It is about modern quilting. It is to further the guild's mission. So we really stay focused specifically on modern quilting in our workshops and lectures and um, and the quilt show really, I think is the, is like a key to our education. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had people go, you know, I wasn't totally clear on what modern quilting is, how it's different from traditional quilting, but then I saw the quilt con quilt show and I get it. It just clicked for me. I get it. Sometimes you just, it's really helped us that way. So I think we're different from those shows in that way. Those shows are broadly quilting shows. They might have an art quilt exhibit or they might have, you know, a modern quilt exhibit or, or, um, and we do sometimes have though in this coming um, QuiltCon 2018, we are going to have an exhibit from Sakwa, but there is always a link to modern quilting. Those are art quilts that inspired the modern quilting movement. We always have a link that brings us back to our mission. Um, and that's really our true north whenever we're making decisions, both about the event and the guild in general. So I would say those are the two big differences. Okay. And you have, you have taken on other big projects that you've probably had to make those decisions about. In other words, does this fit? Is this what, mm-hmm. you know, furthering our mission or not? And I'm thinking about, you have a book coming out soon um, and you also have a PBS show. So do you want to talk a little bit about each of those things? Who is the, who's publishing the book? Um, the book is published by CNT. Okay. Um, who are a large quilt, quilting book publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And yeah, it's going to be a beautiful coffee table book that is, uh, you know, just a gallery of over 200 quilts made by MQG members. Um, all the begin starts with a short history of and sort of describes the movement and how it came to be. But really, is so there's a bit of text, but predominantly is just a big, beautiful photography book of modern quilts. And was um, that was that a project that came to you, or was that something that you sort of pitched? It's something we pitched. We went to um, more than one publisher and pitched it and talked through, you know, our vision for the book and and um, ended up going with the publisher who we felt most aligned with. Um, you know, when you're working with a publisher, you really want to make sure they see the book the same way you do. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so we um, that's how we we do. It's a book we'd had in mind for a while, but at the same time, if the movement had been too young, there wouldn't have been enough content for the book. You know, we needed to let the modern quilting movement mature somewhat in order to have really, really outstanding quilts, you know, to, through the whole book. And, um, right. And, and I think it'll be nice to have this sort of solid piece of, you know, of media that you can hold in your hands and, look through and you were talking about that aha moment that some people have when they attend QuiltCon for the first time and aren't 100% clear on what modern quilting means or what it's about, then they walk the show and they get it. So this is a way for maybe a little bit of a wider, you know, world to to have that aha moment right in their own home. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I really think this is a coffee table book that can be on and anyone who loves art or design of any kind would love this book. And then the PBS you know? show is is sort of a is sort of a, a an exciting project too, but maybe in, in along the same lines of furthering that educational mission. So you want to talk a little bit about that and how it came about? Sure, sure. For that, um, we were actually approached. Um, KS Productions um, are, are are the co-producers of the show, along with the MQG, and um, they already do a number of public television quilting shows. So um, they came to us. They they had this idea, you know, this new um, segment of of quilting now exists, and there should be a, a public television show to to um, fit that that, uh, that need and that, that those, those quilters and to, you know, spread the word even further. So we were of course very excited and on board with this right away. We just thought this is fantastic, meets our mission. Absolutely. And, um, and yeah, so we, um, it's a really good partnership in that the MQG has real access and knowledge about all modern quilters today and who's doing what and who would be a good fit for which segment and what they could teach. And, and then they really have the TV production. They have the studio, they have the knowledge, you know, they have the gear already. And so we, we really work well together in, in a partnership that way in terms of providing what the other half would need to make this show a success. And we just finished filming the second season uh, a week ago. Um, so yeah, and it's, um, it's fantastic also because we really, really realize that video content is something that is only more and more prevalent online and more and more desired. And it was a way for us to provide the show is on public television, but all of the content is also free for our members on our website. So it was sort of a double a, a double way to really spread the word to a broader audience and then also provide this really great 
uh, educational content to our members. And so. is there a longer term vision for the Modern Quilt Guild, sort of other collaborations or projects that you have sort of planned out over the next five or 10 years? Or where, you know, where do you see things headed over that span of time? And do, would you ever do a podcast? Um, we might, we've talked about it. Um, you know, we always, we always do a lot of research on existing, what already exists, you know, where, where can we fill, we don't need to duplicate something that's already successfully being done, you know? Um, so yeah, we've, we've talked about a podcast. It would have to look very different from existing quilting podcasts. And, um, the big picture vision, you know, I'm, <laughs> that's the board's job. <laughs> no, I don't mean to push it off. Um, that's a really good question. And, um, and actually we have a, a, a big strategic meeting planned for September with the whole board, um, to sit down and really hammer that out. We have spent so long running to catch up with, the growth of the organization and the and 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 creating what we wanted to provide for membership through content events and and you know all the all, everything that we provide we've spent so long running to catch up that now we're finally at a point to stop and go wait let's let's now look at where we're running you know rather than just catching keeping up with what's already you know just seemingly organically growing and thriving and existing already um so, I mean, I could, I could, I, per, what I, per, how I personally see the MQG going, well, well, I have a say is not, uh, you know, that's a, a big thing that the big conversation that the board um, really has and continuously has and will continue to have. I mean, I would, th we are still growing, you know, we just hit 12,000 members um, we'll continue growing. We'll continue doing QuiltCon. We're always, um, looking for new and exciting and different projects that meet our mission without overwhelming staff's abilities. See, this is another thing is we're always, <laughs> there's always more than we can actually manage to do. So, um, so we'll see, we'll see, but things are, you know, it's still, I, I often think we're no longer an infant organization, but we're just, just getting into our adolescence. So we'll see what, what adulthood looks like, okay. you know? Yeah. Let's turn now to your other job because <laughs> you're a person who has two. And <laughs> in your other job, um, you are a casting director and you are right now the casting director for Project Runway. And you've been been on the show since season seven. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's now oh, season 14. We just finished casting season 16. Okay, wow. So, so it been... hasn't aired yet, but we've okay. just finished casting All right, it. See, yeah. I, got, I got that season 14 number from my 13-year-old, so that tells you where <laughs> I get my facts from. But um, so <laughs> that's over. That's more than half of the life of this show that you've been um, casting it. And I know that Project Runway, like the Modern Quilt Guild, has been an inspiration for a lot of people, especially for younger people in the case of Project Runway to begin sewing and to begin trying to make their own clothing after watching people make clothing on TV and just feeling like it was possible. Um, and I think it's, I mean, I actually think Project Runway has had an effect on our creative culture as a whole. Um, 
And I know you've worked in casting for a long time, since maybe 2005, something like that. Um, But at this point, really, Project Runway is the only show that you're working on. And I wonder what it is about that show that you particularly like. There are a number of reasons I love that show. I loved it before I ever worked on it. So just to quickly clarify, too, like having two jobs, I never I don't do two full time jobs at once. I'm not insane. (laughs) So um, so the way my contract with the MQG is structured is that I am full time nine months a year and that for then for three months or 12 weeks a year, I ramp down to 15 hours a week um, while I do Project Runway because we cast for 12 weeks once a year. Um, so I had a, you know, I had a 15 year career casting all different kinds of reality shows, but it was freelance. So I could pick it up and put it down as much as I wanted. And so I was able to, in those gaps of not having a job casting to do this MQG work initially voluntarily, and then eventually hired, um, first I was hourly and there was an understanding that just financially I had to keep casting. Um, but then as, as the guild grew and became more financially sound and stable, we were able to work out this situation where I still do project runway. So I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that, um, television pays a little bit more than a quilting nonprofit. So financially for me, um, that's a lot of what drives me to continue doing Project Runway once a year. But beyond the money part, the show itself is so great. Um, You know, there's so many reality shows where you're just looking for attractive, big personalities. Project Runway is about the skill they bring to the table. These people are so talented. I sit in these casting calls. I don't garment sew at all. And I have to say, having worked on the show confirms that I probably never will because I see these people come in with four years of schooling in, in, you know, garment sewing, and they are so talented. They are so skilled. They really have these skills of a craftsman to know how to build garments. And then they have the creative part of putting their own point of view, their own vision on top of it. And they you know, that's what they bring to the table and that's why they're on the show. And the show also, you know, um, I've, Tim Gunn used to come to the casting calls a lot. He hasn't for a couple of years now, but so I've met him a number of times and he would always say the show promotes hard work and he's right. They have to work so hard a to even qualify to be on it, but then actually being on it is hard work as well. So, um, so that's, you know, that's one, some of the few reasons I love that show. I've always loved it. I think it's perfect for the television medium because you look at fashion. That's always my gripe with top chef. You can't taste the food, (laughs) you know, but with, with, um, project runway, you look at fashion and yeah, having been on it a number of years now, we're now casting designers who say they got into design because of the show. It's really rewarding. It really is. I imagine that's true. And, and can you just tell us a little bit about what you're looking for? I'm sure everybody asks every casting director that that's like, gotta be the most common question. What are you looking for? But I'm just going to ask it anyway. So what are you looking for? and a contestant for Project Runway? Well, the first thing is talent. That is what comes first. You know, first, um, the the way the process works, just really really briefly, is that um, applicants submit an online uh, portfolio to us. They answer, you know, a many, many question-long application that tells us about their personality and their life and all of that. But the first thing that's looked at is the work that they submit. Um, Based on that work, 
they are invited to closed casting calls. So they happen all over the country. We invite the designers whose work is meets a certain bar, and that's completely independently of who they are, right? Like, I mean, obviously we have to make sure we're maintaining diversity in all ways in terms of who we invite. We can't look at it, you know, two months into the process and be like, oh no, there's only blonde girls at all the casting calls. We have to make sure that, you know, we maintain diversity in all ways because that's, that has to be represented on the final cast as well. Um, but so based on that, they come to casting calls if they are invited. They meet then with a fashion panel. So we're casting directors. We aren't fashion experts. So we can, they meet with this panel of experts who are made up of, um, there's always someone who either won the show. There's off, there's off, there's always somebody from Marie Claire. So that editorial eye, Tim used to come not so much anymore. Sometimes we get a local high-end shop owner, um, who comes. So they meet with them and, um, they get feedback, they get constructive feedback on their work. And, and, we've seen people come through and apply to the show multiple times and watched their work grow from the feedback of the casting calls. Because once they're out of school, there's nowhere to get that formal structured feedback in the same way, you know, on your work. So, um, they get that feedback. The panel gives them a yes, no, or a maybe. And we then from a casting perspective, interview all the yeses and maybes. Um, uh, to just then get to know them as people. So first they have to pass all these bars just talent wise before they're even considered personality wise. So obviously it's a TV show, right? It's not, it's a TV show there. You can't cast 16 wallflowers, but, um, but there is, there's always people who get on the show purely for talent, purely for talent. Like, are they the most charismatic, exciting human being on the planet, maybe not, but if their talent is a 10, they will get on anyway. And that is a rare thing for reality TV. I will say it right here and now. Like I've worked on a lot of shows and for the most part, people get cast purely based on that personality. Um, Project Runway really, you know, your dream candidate has both, right? Is incredibly talented and has a huge personality. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, so we really then look for that. We try and get a good balance of both in the final cast. You can't, I always say you can't cast 16 winners. If you cast 16 winners, you're wasting them when they're eliminated second, you know? Mm, that's a great point. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's really, we're looking first and foremost, the most important thing we're looking for is talent. And, and that is really the truth. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great. Right. It's like that Tim Gunn wow factor, the, that unique voice. And, and you know, I think that that's, that also carries forward into quilting, right? That wow factor, yes. the unique voice, the individuality, you know, innovation, that's something, somebody who's doing something or seeing something in a new way that all of us have been looking at that color red, but here's that color red presented differently. A hundred percent. Sitting through the th through Project Runway casting calls and hearing the feedback that those designers get on their work has impacted my quilting enormously. Well, tell us, give us an example of have of like a concrete way in which sitting in casting calls and interviewing all of these potential contestants for the show has transferred for you to quilting. Um, well, 
that would be in relation to the the, the quilts I personally make, right? Sure. Like, which since ha- since having kids, I make many fewer than I used to. <laughs> but but um, but you know, that's a chapter. I'll ramp back up again when my kids are older. But um, uh, so I think any artist, and you know, you you'll hear artists give this advice, like go work in a different medium, go go, you know, go learn how to throw pottery in order to sort of reinvigorate your own work and look at it with fresh eyes. And so that has absolutely happened for me. I mean, the feedback that they get can apply to any art form, you know, learn how to edit, don't over design, find your own voice, you know, all these things apply to any art form and really make me start looking at my quilts hearing those words in my head, you know, would, what would Nina Garcia think of this quilt? You know, would she think this quilt has taste issues or needs to be edited is too busy is too, you know? So, um, so yeah, it really, and, and, and also the idea of finding your own voice, which you can only do by doing right. The more quilts you make, the more you will automate of your own design. You know, if you make pattern after pattern, you're going to improve your own, your technical skills, but in term and, and your color selection or fabric selections, all that will improve. But if you keep using other people's patterns, your design, um, I might not improve as much as if you're always pushing yourself to make, um, your own designs or, or, or at least tweak existing patterns to give your own, add your own voice to them. Um, and so you, really that, uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, I hear that. I think that's really good advice. And, um, and I know that you've written, you know, two books and they, they came out a while ago. And as you've said, you know, they, they came out in 2011 and 2012. And as you said, you're in a different chapter of life. Now you have two, um, young children, uh, who you're, you know, being a mom too, along with doing all of these exciting things. So, and I, and I feel like, you know, there's one route where you write patterns, you maybe design fabric, you blog, you teach around the country, basically market yourself as designer. And you have chosen not to do that, to not pursue that path. And I wonder if, if there's something about that sort of kind of work that isn't that appealing to you. Um, well, it's a couple different things. Having young kids is huge, right? Like the, the, all of all those things that you listed teaching is what the biggest percentage of people's income comes from, right? Like they can be fabric designers and pattern designers and, and write books and teach. And they have it, the teaching I think they would all agree is the biggest percentage of their income. And in order to teach, you have to travel. You have to always be gone. You're never home. And I have a one-year-old and a five-year-old. That's just not, not only is it not on the table, I wouldn't want it either. Um, I want to be home with my kids while they're this young. Um, It's also a, a different avenue where I'm in the quilting world and make a living has presented itself through the MQG, you know? And I also, I also figured out pretty early that my casting skills, these organizing human beings skills that come from reality casting transfer very well to the guild, to running the modern quilt guild. I have this skill set already that lent itself to, you know, in, in, in reality casting, we call outreach when you're spreading the word that you're casting it all. And you're looking for a very targeted demographic, a certain group of people who do a certain thing, you know, that outreach is what made the guild grow initially. I could do that already. Um, so, so 
I guess it was a, a transfer of a skill set there that was pretty clear, but then also that I make a salary from the MQG. And so I'm in, I'm entrenched in the modern quilting world day in, day out. I'm inspired by the work I see around me all the time. Um, but you're right. It's not my own creative work. Um, and I, I don't know, we'll see what happens when I, um, when my kids get older and I have, um, more time to make more quilts, if that's something I want to pick up, but it's just such, such a scramble. There's so much hard work that goes into making a living that way. Yeah. It's a huge hustle. It is. It is a hustle. That's it's a word. hustle You're for right. sure. It and is a hustle. Although I don't do exactly that, I do a combination of that and other things. But no matter what, it's just a, it's a hustle. And um, as I always say to my husband, you got to pedal the bike. And the minute you stop pedaling, you stop getting gigs and you stop earning money. So it's an 100%. exhausting hustle for sure. And it's definitely not something that everyone is cut out for or that anyone is cut out for all the time. But, um, right. but it's you an meant- exhausting hustle to make like 50 grand to a year. Make, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Like uh, you, know? you said it. I mean, that's that's what that reality looks like for many, many people who who appear to be extremely successful. Um, and it's 50 grand a year with no benefits. <laughs> and, right, right. Um, and a lot so. of the most successful ones you know, Amy Butler lives in rural Ohio. I live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Like my my expenses day in day out just are higher. I it's it's a really hard way to make a living. Amen to and that. I, yeah, for sure. And and you mentioned having two sons and and being a working mom and are you commuting to an office during the 9 months that you're working for the Modern Quilt Guild? I do not. We do not have an office. We, we have, we all work, the whole staff works, um, remotely and makes their own hours, which is fantastic. There's a lot of us who are moms to young kids who work for the organization. And it's sort of the perfect fit that way. Like I can, you know, later on today, I will go pick my, my five-year-old up at summer camp at three. I can do that. I have that flexibility. Um, we do have an, a show office for three months leading up to QuiltCon. So when QuiltCon is in Pasadena, I do have an office at that point, um, which is kind of a fun switch, but I still have the flexible hours, which is awesome. So, um, that's great. So, do you have, yeah. do you have any tips for I mean, I always ask this question, but you have any tips for moms who are, you know, working and trying to do both well, um, trying to be there with their children and enjoy their their children's childhood um, and also be there for the business they're building and enjoy that too. Any tips for managing, juggling? How, how are you making that work for you? I don't know if I am. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's a, the same struggle for, for all moms in that situation. Anytime I'm, I mean, and it's also that the MQG is something I, I co-founded. And so it's really something I'm hugely passionate about. It's hard to put it down when I'm not working. Um, so that's, that's part of the complication, right? Like if I just had a standard nine to five where I closed the door and you know, drove home from the office, it's easier to put it down when you're not at work. Um, but you know, when I'm hanging with my kids, my email inbox is, is hanging over my head. And then when I'm working my, that I'm not spending time with my kids is heading over my head, but that's, you know, this gets into a much larger conversation about the role of women in society and, you know, how that develops and why we feel that way to begin with. Um, 
I have done my best to just come to the conclusion that that's just part of it. The struggle and finding that balance is part of the day in, day out. There is no balance to be found. It is just always um, managing it that is part of the job, part of life, not the job, but life. Um, And to cut myself a break, to not feel I mean, if you always feel guilty about one or the other thing, then you're always feeling guilty. And what way is that to live? You know, so um, so I tried to just cut myself a break in that way. I've also really let myself stop making so many quilts. And that drives me. (laughs) It drives me crazy. I really miss it. I really actively miss making quilts. Yeah. But but that'll be there when my kids are older and. and there's a lot of feeling like I do everything poorly, right? I mean, I think, you know, um, we are hard on ourselves, you know, yes. and I, I think we're yeah. our, our own harshest critic. Um, but, but I think just hearing that somebody who is so successful and has built such a fantastic thing and is also involved in such an exciting television show, um, sort of struggles with that balance too. I think it's comforting just to know that, you know, all of us are sort of in that same boat and all of us. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think I've, I've met, I don't think I've ever met a working mom who didn't have that struggle. Yeah. My, my, but I just, I guess I just feel like I love to work. And, and so yes. work is really important to me. Um, and it's interesting because I always thought I just really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And then when the day come, I came, I immediately knew I actually really loved working. <laughs> and yeah. so there, there needed to be balance there as far as not balance, but I needed to do both um, and find a way yes. to do both. Yes, I agree completely. I love working too. It was never... Um, I never even thought about the idea that I wouldn't keep working after I had kids. But then I also have this lovely situation um, where, you know, a a lot of working moms have to pick, do I get to pick my kid up at school or do I get to work? I don't have to make that choice, which is really wonderful and um, a situation I don't take for granted, that I can pick my kid up at school and work is, is really an ideal situation for, for my life right now. And, and, um, and one, I guess, I guess I kind of worked hard to create. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I yeah. feel blessed in that same way. And, and before we get to your list of recommendations, I did have one other question, which is sort of more esoteric about modern quilting. And this is sort of a question I've always had in the back of my mind, and I would hope to explore further down the road, but it's about the connection between modern quilting and being online um, and whether or not those two things could survive without one another. In other words, the modern quilting movement, or at least the modern quilt guild, was birthed out of this Flickr and blogging um, communication. And that was the origin, you know, of, of the guild. And, and as you said, the guild then drove the movement to get larger and more established and more respected and all of that kind of thing. And so it kind of feeds each each other, like being online and being in the modern quilt guild, sort of, I don't know, there's like a feedback loop there. And I just wondered whether you thought that the whole thing could have ever existed without the internet and sort of the role that the internet has played in this sort of new sector of quilting. Um, I do think that they... Um that the modern quilting movement would have happened independently of the internet. I just think it would have taken a lot more time. It would have happened much more 
slowly. Um, you know, I think the art quilting movement of the 60s and 70s is a good example of that, right? Like qu quilting has seen previous movements that way, big changes, big adjustments, big, um, but it happened more slowly just because of the nature of how people communicate. You know, um, now the internet makes everything so much faster. We can post a picture in two seconds and, and that picture inspires, you know, a hundred other quilters to go make their own quilt that is, you know, inspired by, or, or pushed their, their voices pushed by the, you know, what they see around them. And so it just moves much more quickly, I think, because of the internet. Okay. I do. I do think it would have happened anyway, though, because aesthetic movements happened before the Internet. Right. <laughs> you know, right. So, so you, I think that's an interesting point. So it's really just about speed, the speed of connectivity between people. And so so things happen more quickly. So in a, right. In a, in a span of, would you say, maybe 10 years, it sort of went from I'm not going to say zero, but from from very small, sort of not not super well known or identified to really large, to 12,000 people, to a, a, a national event, to, you know, to all of this that we see now. So, and, and that happened in, in the decade because of the internet, but other, otherwise it would have happened anyway, maybe over two decades. Exactly. Exactly. You know, SACWA, the Studio Art Quilt Association, kind of the art quilters equivalent of the Modern Quilt Guild, has been around for 30 years. You know, so they, it's this, it, I think this, a similar, I, I, yeah, I'm just, mm -hmm. just, I think that art quilting is a really good example of a similar movement having happened independently of the internet. And I think um, that um, it seems yeah. to me too, that the exhibit, the G's Bend exhibit was really like a pivotal moment as well. Like if I were to trade, like every time I feel like I discover a different modern culture, they point to seeing that exhibit in person as the thing that opened their eyes to sort of a new way of looking at quilting and they sort of went home and got to work. And, um, and I mean, it's obviously not everybody, but it does certainly seem like that exhibit was a pivotal moment in the development of this movement. Yeah. I would say that is definitely true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's um, get to your recommendations because they're great. So um, the first thing you wanted to recommend is Pam Wiley's. Um, uh, so she's an amazing quilter that you are inspired by and you wanted to recommend her quilts, especially following them on Instagram. Yes. Her, she is a long arm quilter, um, but who also pieces her own quilts. So her quilts are made from her, from start to, by her, from start to finish, but um, her long arm quilting is really sort of the star of the show with her quilts. She is so talented and so, does such amazing work. And she's somebody who I think has been a little bit under the radar because she's been doing her own thing. She taught, um, at SCAD at Savannah college of art and design for years and years. Um, uh, still does, I believe. I don't think she's chair of their department anymore, but she still teaches. And I think was really therefore immersed in the art world. And so was sort of doing her own thing. Um, while the modern quilting movement was taking off and she's making what are clearly modern quilts sort of on her own in the art world. And so I think not as many people know of her work, um, for that reason, because she was a little bit 
in the art world rather than in the quilting world, which has huge overlap, of course. But um, and her quilts, the the, the um, long arming on them, it almost looks like spire. It reminds me, at least, of spirograph. The yeah, way that that's the, true. it's got that sort of um, lines that sort of circulate outwards, um, and a lot of red and white. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's really geometric and. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredibly interesting and, and different from what you're seeing elsewhere, for sure. I definitely recommend people come check this out. Um, yeah. That's super she's cool. amazing. Yeah. Your coffee table book, which is coming out. And tell us the name of that book so people can pre-order it. It is called Modern Quilts, Designs of a New Century. Okay. And it's so, on, is it on uh, Amazon or, or wherever now? It is. Okay. Yeah. You, it's, it's both, it's available for pre-order um, in the MQG's shop, which is modernquiltguild.com. And there's a shop tab at the top or on Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Super. It comes out, comes out late in the year. So, okay. So, you know, just little personal tidbit there is that my father, my father for Christmas every year gives me a big hardcover quilting book. He's done this since I fell in love with quilting. And this year I'm going to give him this one. Aww, <laughs> that's kind of so, cool, you know? That's so nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, he'll be so impressed. That's, that's great. That's a great yeah. tidbit for sure. Um, and you think it'll be available for Christmas shopping? Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's out by the end of the year. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Alisa, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh and Ups podcast. It was great talking to you. Really my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And you've been listening to the Walsh and Ups podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshinaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Jacqueline Steves. Jacqueline has a free block of the month coming up called I Love Home. Each quilt block has a house theme and the program will run August through December of 2017. There are options to just piece the quilt blocks or to embellish them with applique and hand embroidery. You can get the optional fabric kit now for $6 off when you use the coupon code WALSHENAPS2017 at checkout. So visit JacquelineSteves.com to get the I Love Home Block of the Month for free. And thank you so much, Jacqueline. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time.